Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Nate Heinerman, Ph.D., and New School host Steve Heilig, as they discuss ending the war on death, improving care for dying patients, and those who will be. Nate Heinerman, welcome to the New School Talk. Uh, how many, if any, have not been here before? In person. Great. Well, you've been here virtually, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So this is actually one of a series of bull talks in the New School that we do, but the, in a sub-series called the End of Life uh, Talks. And on our website, which is, you can go to Commonweal's website, and the new New School website is on there, there are a large archive of talks on all manner of topics, but including a fair number now on end-of-life issues, which uh, is a natural offshoot of Commonweal in a sense. We've run uh, the Cancer Help Program for many years here and a number of other programs that are related to uh, the topics, some of which we'll be talking about today. Um, we will have a talk and dialogue here for an hour and more and then have questions and answers and dialogue afterwards, if you wish. Uh, we present these free of charge. We welcome donations. There's a box out here just to help us keep the programs going. So thank you all for coming. Um, Nate Heinerman is a, an old friend of mine now that I met through this topic, in a sense. Many years ago, there was a Bill Moyers special on end of life and death and dying uh, on our own terms, it was called. and a network was set up that I ended up running uh, called the San Francisco End of Life Network. And it was just for anybody who worked taking care of, dealing with people towards the end of their life. And we used to host uh, at my office when we had a large building uh, talks at, at lunch and networking meetings where people could come and talk about whatever they wanted. It was kind of a support group, you know, like a, an AA for people who were involved in these issues. Um, my, uh, our receptionist, I remember she would always say, that's the nicest group of people that come in this building, that, that death for lunch bunch or whatever you call them. And she was right, you know. And so when we got rid of that building, we had to, and I moved on and I couldn't uh, run that anymore. I kind of lost track of it. It actually went dormant. And next thing I knew, here was this young fellow who had revitalized it and was running it and is still running it in San Francisco. And that he was also a PhD philosopher who was a lecturer at University of San Francisco, teaching nurses and others about all kinds of healthcare issues. Now is dean of undergraduate studies at Golden Gate University as well. Uh, runs for 13 years now, I believe, an international conference on dying and death. That uh, this last one was in Czechoslovakia, yeah. Yeah. and has a number of books out on these topics as well. So. A really unusual guy because I used to say at the end of life lunch meetings that this was a very select and really weird group of people because most people do not like to talk about this stuff until forced into it. And there was actually a huge poll, Roper poll or something like that many years ago. So the two most frightening things for Americans were death and number two was talking about death, followed by public speaking in general, right? So. What I want to start with, with Nate today, before we get into some of the issues, was to really ask him, what's a nice young guy like you <laughs> doing immersed? You know, a guy, he's a father of young kids and uh, beautiful pets and, um, you know, and 
and has been into this now for quite some years. So how did you get into this realm of talking about end of life and death and dying? Well, first of all, it's good to see you. Thank you for today. I sure do appreciate our friendship over all these many years and admire you. And I've appreciated, too, this space. I listen to the podcasts and Michael's leadership and the ecosystem that emerges here during all these gatherings. It's really chicken soup for the soul for me. And so you can imagine what a tremendous honor it is to be able to sit and be part of this and to lead a conversation. Of course, in the spirit of intellectual humility around these questions of meaning and value and relationship as they intersect and all the ways that they do in our lives. This is something best shared and discussed as a group because I want to learn from you too. So I have a, um, I, I picked a couple of things I thought I could read to just give us some, maybe some common ground or some common language, but, and then we can open it up and pass it back and forth. To answer your question in a nutshell, you know, uh, Plato insists what? That you live an, an examined life. Well, uh, I was working with um, a philosopher over at Cal, and it was uh, around um, Martin Heidegger's work, and he has a famous phrase uh, about being toward death. And I had a Jesuit who was on my dissertation committee who said, and he didn't like Heidegger at all, and didn't like the fact that I was working with Dreyfus across the block, and he said, if you want to do, he said, well, I'll tell you what he really said. He said, the theoretical consequences of any assertion are borne out in the practical consequences. And I looked at Don, my mentor, and he said, what I'm telling is you need to probably become a hospice volunteer if you're really going to get into this existential philosophy because you've got to ground the esoteric and you've got to ground the theoretical and what it's like to really do service. Otherwise, you don't, you'll never know what you're talking about. And so I became a hospice volunteer through Zen Hospice Project, which was another way in which our paths intersect, although we weren't there at the same time. Six months into the training and to the service, changed my life, changed my research interests. Uh, didn't change the fact that I wanted to finish school, but quickly thereafter, I went back and became a marriage and family therapist so I could focus on bereavement work, especially at uh, Pathways, where I had many, many hours of um, seeing clients and families uh, there. But anyway, so... Um, uh, the uh, changed how I related to myself, that hospice experience, and so um, have stayed with hospice, and that continues to inform and to ground me just as Don promised it would, and so some of that's led to some of the other projects that um, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And you were, at that time, where you became a professor and a teacher. Yeah, that's too. right. So yeah. what are the main areas that you teach? In? Philosophy and psychology. Uh, the uh, The areas of overlap. Um, it's interesting. You know, so, so there was a death and dying class now 14 years ago that I was hired to write and develop for, for University of San Francisco. And there was debate around where, where in the university we would house such content. And there was a kind of a push-pull relationship to it. There were some departments that said, yeah, we'd sure like to have it on the curriculum, but not in our department. No. That's the theologian's bit. And then somebody said, no, this is really more in the social sciences. or the sci And finally, the nursing school was bold enough to say, no, we want a hospice and palliative care class. And I don't think some folks in the humanities knew what palliative care had to do. Uh, and so they, anyway, so that's how the class started. And so I wrote and started that same one at State a few years later, and they housed that in a gerontology uh, program. Um, done it uh, at Golden Gate, and that's still yet in another uh, auspice. And so, um, and it's right in that, you know, these are interdisciplinary questions. And when you ask the broad, interdisciplinary, teleological questions that involve us all, we ought not 
selects a single discipline to be the representative of. It, the, the methodologies needed to really pursue and, and investigate questions of meaning, value, and relationship relative to mortality, no one discipline owns that. So in a way, it makes sense that it's housed in different places all around the, mm-hmm. the Bay Area. And at one point, how, what's the highest number of classes you've been teaching at once? He told me this oh, one. So. man. He, it's amazing. I don't know how he does it. He had like six or seven classes going at once, you know, more than that. <laughs> okay. Well, so a, a, quality control could be a concern yeah, in their mind. So let's just well, say that he's working hard. He's pounding the pavement. He's running and, and I mean, running I've and running. I've always been, I mean, I would get exhausted just talking to Nate about what he's been up to sometimes. In the, well, you know, so. yeah, well, Steve gets exhausted with me for all sorts of other reasons, too. But one of the things that, you know, but it's the, uh, the, and you've heard this said, and people have said it as part of this series in the various podcasts, but it is the abiding privilege, and it's the energy that you get uh, when you, you know, it, it makes all the sense in the world if you're in it, but sometimes from the outside, people, you know, scratch their head. But to, to really be present, and in the truth-telling process, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot more uh, truth, well, there's a lot more truth-hearing in the truth-telling process than one might otherwise think, and the gift of being able to sit be present, especially in a room full of students, and to teach and learn from their experiences, to facilitate uh, sharing and a dialogue, and to really sojourn with them rather than to sort of come up as a uh, subject matter expert. There's a tremendous, um, there's a a tremendous lightning on one level of the work, and then there's a tremendous sort of uh, enduring, profound privilege to enter into those conversations. And so that's what, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's fun. It's, yeah. it's something worth... Well, that comes through in you. Okay. So, so right. you wanted to start with telling us, uh, to read yeah. us something and tell us some, some... So one thing that philosophers are supposed to do anyways is to help us uh, revise or retrieve new meanings or lost meanings or significance uh, from the jaws of the tyranny of the mundane. You know, and sometimes one strategy to do that is to to take language, common, ordinary language that we use, and to sort of... <laughs> Well, help us reflect, I guess, on what's really being said or another channel. I wrote an article uh, a few years ago called Habits of the Heart and End-of-Life Care. And I just wanted to read a couple excerpts from it because I think it'll, as Raymond Carver likes to say, it'll show you where I'm calling from. And yet, you know, we, we, just from the outset, and we'll get, in, we'll get up underneath the hood of this as we talk, but there are really you know, two watershed changes in and around uh, dying. There's the change within the past hundred years around how we're dying, what we're dying from, who's doing the care. Uh, there's that piece, and that's absolutely important, and we ought to look at it. But then there's a very uh, incredibly recent, we're in the middle of it, the past two years. There's a bellwether shift again around, uh, it's a burgeoning movement around the um, infusion of something called palliative care that we're going to talk more about. So I wrote this uh, in a more kind of liminal spot. This was four or five years old, and I was just trying to talk about um, Well, what I was hearing and uh, what some other folks are writing about in terms of the language that's used in these increasingly truncated medical interviews that we were having, especially the language used in diagnostic moments uh, around chronic progressive illness. And so this is is the piece. Uh, I'm just going to read a few few parts and then we can open it up. Um, Medical discourse is replete with the language of war often and such phrases as the war on cancer, magic bullets, silver bullets, the therapeutic armamentarium, 
You use that phrase all the time. I know Steve does. <laughs> Eight, but, but the agents of disease, the body's defenses. Of course, you must always do what? You follow the doctor's orders, right? And this is, these phrases are deeply ingrained in our medical rhetoric. The mindset engendered by this discourse of war renders the patient as a, bat appeal, a battlefield upon which the doctor slash combatant defeats the arch enemy disease. The reified disease becomes the object of the physician's attention in most cases, displacing the patient as the interlocutor in the doctor-patient relationship. This shift of attention is exacerbated by contemporary imaging methodologies, and patients who in Foucault's clinic become open to the medical gaze are rendered totally transparent, perhaps even virtual now. Diagnostics become centered on the putative agent, and therapeutics revolves around extirpation and conquest. Arguably, the most important effect of this framing of medicine is the eradication of the patient's voice from the narrative of the illness. The dialogic construction of the narrative of the illness is supplanted by the physician's case record and his or her search for the physical seat of the disease. And the healing affected through the development of meaning falls victim in these militarized discourses, I'm suggesting, often, not always. The military metaphors that pervade medicine undermine the ability of physicians and society to deal with the burgeoning burden of chronic illness. And I would add to that, perhaps even, adds to the burden of helping us uh, have uh, uh, relevant, personal, practical conversations about end of life. As a therapist, you know, I, I was just doing a sketch, you know, about the attitudes, the common attitudes that I've seen both in session and at various conferences like the international one, and ones that might typify, and this, these are generalizations, so on some level of specificity they fail, so forgive me, that doesn't apply to everyone. But, you know, American attitudes about death, oftentimes, and I'm not the only one that has characterized uh, them in this way, um, but, but, and this is just a short, a short set, but there tends to be some mistrust or some insecurity around, um, the position, the orientation of the disease, who is being held by me, the person, and then how I'm going to be seen uh, in the clinic. Uh, I think there are fears. People report this uh, in, in surveys. Uh, they have fears of becoming a victim, which sometimes increases aggressive behavior. Um, people have written about, I think this is a strong word, but there can be an irrational dread of dying, that all deaths will be uh, time-consuming, very ripe with pain, uh, lonely, suffering will not be able to mitigate it, be mitigated and so forth. Um, and of course, we can come up with examples where some of these characterizations are quite true, um, but there are other ways in which people die as well. Here's the big one. I go through this list just to say that almost always, especially in my sessions and in my work, um, there's a felt sense of helplessness around, I think, in part, these questions of meaning and value and relationship that folks report are really the most uh, essential, of most essential concern, and yet they're oftentimes uh, deposed by this attention on the physical body. I'm gonna say it a different way. So if death is made to be a medical failure <laughs> yeah, and not a natural event, then I think you can more easily get into some of this way of uh, framing things, um, even despite the banners that hang outside. Uh, they don't anymore, but this one was taken down not too long ago outside of a hospital uh, here in San Francisco. But, you know, it said, uh, blank, where miracles happen. 
I thought, you know, no pressure there. You know, I mean, that's the free, that's the free box. Vic says that's the free box. He's right. So, so with that as a backdrop, and especially with this notion increasingly that somehow death is, is something to be absolutely staved off and it's a medical failure when it happens, I think in part that helps amplify or give fuel for the public arena these days, which is filled with discussions about the crisis in medicine. And healthcare isn't just a major topic of political debate here, it so is in the UK and in Australia, uh, in Canada, I mean, around the world. And so when we have, we typically have representatives from you know, about 100 participants, 13, 15, 20 different countries represented at the international conference. And in each of these cases, when folks assemble, almost all of them will use at some point the crisis in medicine, and they're referring to their own context. So the crisis language there is present. Um, the social, economic, and political forces uh, behind the crisis language have resulted in enormous strains in the doctor-patient relationship, the arena for diagnostic and therapeutic interventions, and perhaps have helped cannibalize the medical interview, perhaps even the clinical relationship without, medis without which medicine can sometimes devolve into some mechanical pursuit within a chaotic care delivery system. Um, my, this is almost Freudian to make this point now, but so my wife is a, she's a nurse practitioner at San Francisco General, and, um, and, and so she's on the neurosurgical team there, and, um, it's not just the general. Uh, so many places, even despite the incredible level of care that they're able to provide day in and day out as a level one trauma hospital, and you look at the standards of excellence like you see, and I mean, we're so lucky uh, in this area to have so many skilled, brilliant, committed, compassionate folks. And yet, even within those systems, there are pockets of chaos, I think. And sometimes the uh, patients uh, will report not quite even knowing who they're key contact person is or who they ought to, what they ought to expect, what questions are fair game, what questions are not. Um, so in this paper, in this article, I was trying to just simply make the case that the language and metaphors of contemporary medical discourse express and reflect the stress in the doctor-patient relationship and more importantly, that in the discourse, at least in part, can be responsible for shaping the behaviors that characterize the practice of medicine, especially at the end of life today. Said a different way, from a philosopher's point of view, the way that you define the problem gives rise to the tools, the methodologies, the expectations for how you're going to solve it. It also sets in a certain way a heuristic for the measurements that you'll use to say whether or not you've succeeded in, in accomplishing what you set out to do. So defining What's really being the, seen as the problem is, is, is crucial. And so, in a way, what I'm talking about here is, um, is, is about the way we can, uh, the, the way that the problem can be defined. Um, there's a phrase, I mean, just a couple more spots, and then we'll, I'll turn it back over to you. But there's a, a phrase in medical literature for sure, but it's uh, in philosophical, uh, philosophical literature as well, calling the reification of disease. The reification, as I say, the promotion of the disease over and against the patient's narrative. And this is not new. We didn't just start doing this in the past even 100 years, but it's gained a particular kind of inertia and a kind of commonality where we take it for granted, I think, um, and there is something at stake in some cases here. I would argue that the biochemical and molecular understanding of disease, very characteristic of the 20th century, has pushed this trend along its vector of reification and reduction 
to the point that a genetic disease may these days be thought to reside in what? Not in a person, in a misshapen molecule due to a, uh, an error in DNA or uh, orthography. The patient's body has become superfluous to the molecular physician in some cases, now not simply open to the medical gaze, but rather completely transparent to it. Medic magnetic resonance imaging uh, help, uh, aims to visualize pure disease, untainted by the body or by the patient, and the tissues are merely ghosts on the computer screens of an MRI output. The psyche, totally invisible and ephemeral from the stance of a radiologist and molecular pathologist, have now been left behind on the analyst's couch, or the theologians, or the priests, or the rabbis, or, you know, an ethicist, you know, Steve. So, the fragmentation of the, of the person who's experiencing the disease, the promotion now of the, the, the physical body uh, over and against these other pockets uh, of question and meaning and value where they reside. And we, you know, just to be fair too, I mean, we have overly fragmented uh, the, the whole notion uh, of wisdom in the arts and sciences. I mean, we've made that very discipline specific. You know, you right now, you, you know, something that should be, uh, that should commingle uh, across all of the different disciplines in arts uh, and sciences. We've now, you know, you've, it's been very sort of bifurcated for years. You know, there's, um, there, you know, philosophers don't talk to theologians as much as you might think. And, uh, and you know, who knows what's going on in the English department? And, and yet in a way, you know, those conversations ought never be had in isolation. So anyways, uh, the, the reification of disease leads to what some have called the tyranny of diagnosis. So the shifts of locale for the diagnostic act are the result of increasing technological sophistication from the stethoscope to the MRI machine and even the human genome project. And this development reinforces what myself and others have called the tyranny of diagnosis, which once again, puts the doctor's desire, the doctor's need for diagnostic clarity, perhaps ahead of the patient's need for relief of suffering. And so now we get into a question around, is there even a, uh, an ethical mandate to treat suffering? This, this experience that might even be best described metaphorically in clinical settings, or are we really just talking about treating physical pain to whatever extent that we can? That's a philosophical conversation, but you know, you know, at the end of the day, um, I put down here. I say most exempl uh, exemplars of the military metaphors cast the physician in heroic terms, maybe not uh, overtly, but but you know, in a, in a way that's how it kind of gets framed, um, because as the individual responsible for identifying now this reified disease resident inhabiting the patient's body. To, for, for them to name it and arrange it for the means of extirpation or, or elimination. Modern medicine's uh, chemotherapy, whether antimicrobial or anti-tumor, is an analog to this notion of medicine, powerful enough to destroy the species of it, disease. The self-evident successes in treating bacterial infections have served to entrench this construct, reinforce the positioning of disease as the physician's natural enemy, leaving the patient as a bystander, perhaps, or a spectator to the fray. In order to understand, you know, so we could, we could talk about this, and, um, and I'm, I'm, we ought to. I, I just would point out that I think that this is starting to, to fade. This approach certainly works very skillfully uh, in some areas uh, of medicine, in some areas of, of health, but of course, most Americans uh, suffer a slow, progressive chronic illness, and by definition, they would not be responsive, uh, responsive to these kinds of decisive, fully victorious interventions. And so what, what to do then? 
Uh, the loss of the first person story is emblematic, this is the last piece, of the transformation of the patient from author and owner of the narrative, whose very uniqueness served as a means of explicating the mysteries of illness, now to a more passive, perhaps even generic, often solitary observer of the care. The patient's story, especially when validated by the attendant physician, aided in the reduction of uncertainty and served in the construction of meaning without which the experience of illness is fraught with fear and anxiety. All reflexive descriptions of illness, including those by physicians of their own experiences, describe the loss of control and the disorientation that accompany the inability to participate in the affairs of daily living and the uncertainty that, it's, uh, that attends the sudden, unexpected onset of illness. In those instances, where we also expect the patient to be a fighter who must resist being ill, the state of sickness can be complicated by a feeling of having failed to achieve the suitable level of the desire to win. And thus we, we compound, in a way, the injury of the disease with the social insult of failure. And this, this gains a particular momentum in our culture, too, I think, in that, um, you know, uh, we often see wellness as a, or make tantamount wellness with moral virtue. Mm-hmm. The moment, the example that's coming to my mind right now, and I haven't well thought it out, but I guess is Lance Armstrong. You know, the, the heroic... You know, just the, 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 the pedestal that he was put on and because of his health, in a way. And yet, and, and, the, and the subsequent morality that was associated with him, it's just kind of a, it's more of a subconscious thing, I think. But, and, and, and yet, and then how we were able to overlook some of these other um, things that he was doing in order to succeed. It, said differently, when illnesses are made, uh, to, to, and talking about illnesses, are, are made to seem taboo, folks feel walled off. They can feel stigmatized by the diagnosis and then be handed in a certain, perhaps subtle and perhaps not so subtle way, a mission to fight, beat, win, and conquer. Against who? A certain version of themselves. I'm just saying, in some instances, this isn't perhaps the most helpful. There may be other instances where this is precisely the way to go, and I would never take that language uh, military metaphors or otherwise from a client. That's theirs to use. I'm just saying I would be cautious uh, in introducing it. I probably wouldn't introduce it. Here's the last piece. The capacity, and we all would agree to this, but how exactly we do this, um, this is some, This is food for, for, for thought here in this next piece. Um, the capacity to listen attentively and actively, we would agree, is a skill necessary to the proper practice of medicine, is an integral part of the clinical method. In this context, the clinician's capacities, habits, you can call them art or science, are crucial to the curing, caring, and healing. They're not add-ons. Uh, they're not part of a finishing uh, v- uh, veneer uh, done in a medical school. Um, these are, or done just to make a uh, a person feel good, a patient feel good. Um, I think that these are attributes that are intrinsic and foundational to the capacity with which we're, as carers, all of us, uh, we can relieve suffering. And it's not simply for patients that medicine or people who are caregivers these days, especially um, at the end of life, it's not, it's not just for us that we must create new metaphors. What's also at stake uh, is the very persona of us as caregivers whose own identity cannot be rooted in warfare and assault, perhaps, given the nature of our work. When physicians or caregivers uh, forget how to listen to their own uh, clients, their own patients, they also can become deaf to their own soul. And there's a kind of a homiletic quality to that, but you know, how to be present, how to be open, how to serve without tipping over or profoundly dissociating. 
how to use the language that's true and appropriate and, and, uh, and, and so forth that invites a kind of deepening in the relationship rather than to carve out a particular piece of what someone comes into the room and claims is having a problem and then reify that and ignore the rest. Anyhow, so this is, now you get a little flavor of what some of my other research pro- writing projects have been about. So you're diagnosing this, this war, in a sense, and the, with the many problems being the over-specialization, the negative side of otherwise beneficial technology, yes, yeah. the psychological boundary issues that people have to come up and one of we've both been in hospice realm, and so one of the the symptoms of this war for me is that if you look at uh, hospice utilization around the world, mm-hmm. uh, in the United States, the average length of stay when hospice care is either brought in or a person is sent to a hospice, the average there is around two weeks that people are there. If you go to Europe, where they've had it in a longer sense and have a different health system and in some ways a different culture, and Japan and even Australia, it's two months. Right, so four times as long, and most people would say that to it for many, and there's no rule like you say, patients vary widely, people vary widely. But for for most people, to do what hospice is meant to do, which is to change the goals of people's cares, to control the symptoms that haven't been controlled, and to work some sort of emotional and psychological healing to prepare people for the end tends to take longer than two weeks uh, in whatever setting it might be. And so the, real, the reason that's usually given for that in this country is the things you're talking about. Yeah. You've got this technology and you've got specialization and you have a war mentality. It means you fight to the very end no matter what. Yeah. And then when you say, well, that didn't work. You're listening to a conversation with Nate Heinemann and Steve Heilig. Well, you're right. You know, head off to the hospice or, or bring them in. Some people in some models, I mean, in the old days of, of uh, general practitioners and internists, that care was given right up to the end. Nowadays, and I'm a great, huge fan of hospice, as are you, and when it's done right. Um, but in some ways, this is, can be seen as an abandonment. You know, the people who have been taking care of the patient after that point are then saying, okay, here are these other people. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it can be the best thing. I've seen many yeah. times where somebody was not being dealt with well in the, still in the curative sense in the clinical setting, and then when they got to hospice, just yeah. all these symptoms were taken care of. But you, you make this great point. You know, the care always happens in the context of a relationship, doesn't it? And that care, certainly, obviously, it's affecting the person. And, and his or her family, family of choice, but it affects you too, fix us, me, the caregiver. I'm not uh, a tabula, I'm not a blank slate, uh, you know, that Freudian metaphor. Uh, I, I am involved and there's a part of me that is brought to the care. And, uh, you know, just to this point, uh, California Healthcare Foundation in 2011, they had a survey for the state of California conducting the palliative care pulse of Californians, and they had 2000, almost 2,000 folks participate. It was well distributed in terms of age and ethnicity to represent uh, um, the, the populations of, San, of California. One of the first questions uh, we ask in that survey, what's most important to you at the end of life? Four-way tie for first. All, speaking to the point that Steve just made, four-way tie. Don't want to die in pain. Want to be at peace spiritually, which was, I had, you know, basically the intersection of questions in meaning and value and relationship and to get support in, in examining those. 
Don't want to burden my caregivers financially. Don't want my caregivers to argue, to fight about my care. 30 or 40 other options, opportunity to write in to from other things. You know what was dead last on that list? Have a good relationship with my doc. Die at home. But if you go back to 2000, 10 years before, those were one and two. Because it used to be that you couldn't even, I mean, how could you do? Man, I'm from Appalachia. And even when I was, you know, in this is the 60s, early 70s, we, we, we had a family, the doctor came to us. She said, there's no possible way I can understand what's going on with you without knowing the family system. You know, um, this even in contexts where people were dying in the home, um, while that is a major event, uh, event for the person who's dying, absolutely, it has having a profound effect on the people living there too. It's sometimes, I remember what Dr. Corbett would she, she say, you know, uh, such and such has come to peace with it. It's you all that are having the problem. And, you know, just the, the way of the, the, an integrated family systems approach to medicine and, 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 again, the reification of the disease was not... Uh, was not so uh, overt. And it led to a different kind of living with mortality. I think one perhaps that was more able to be normalized, validated, discussed, reflected about. Um, I don't think, um, you, know, so, and so, you know, some of this is, is art imitating life, but then there I think it goes the other way too. But you know, Americans uh, past 10 years have been so fascinated with these shows and CIS, or CIS and well, you think about House. You've each seen a House episode before, haven't you? House? Well, for those of you that haven't, I mean, this, listen, there's an archetype to it. it, it so it's a 60-minute show. First 15 minutes, uh, the, the problem presents. It's something unfixable. The next 15 minutes has the most brilliant uh, Ill interns in the whole country, you know, making guesses at the riddle. Next 15 minutes... Uh, their, their, their interventions are failing and you get now House coming on the scene. He's incorrigible, he's irascible, he has zero bedside manner and there's almost kind of a, a charisma that emerges from that. He's so mean to the patients, you know. And in the last 15 minutes, he saves the day. The patient is saved. And I think the exchange is now, aha, didn't need to relate didn't need the family system, didn't even need to treat his colleagues with respect. What did he do? He saved the person's life, moving on. And I think there's, there's something of an expectation. I mean, even to show a, 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 an episode like that 50 years ago, people would have said, I would never want that doctor to, be, to keep him away from me. You know, that would get, but now it's, it's... It's like this big movie they have announced, American Sniper, I think. It's like, this is the guy that came in and just fixed it. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but tell us about yeah. the... So, Palliative care movement, yeah. if we want to call sure. it that, that is addressing this from yeah. Yeah, let's, within let's do this. the healthcare system. So okay. give us right. a, 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 def, a description sure. of what that is. And so what so here's what I mean by palliative care. This is an adjunctive, supportive layer of care for a serious illness where you don't have to stop curative interventions. It's an interdisciplinary team that comes in and helps uh, assist an oncology team, for example, and someone with a pr progressive chronic illness. It doesn't even have to be for people that are terminally ill. It could be for anyone at any age. And it's farther upstream than, say, for example, hospice. You wouldn't, you, 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 you can, you can uh, palliative care isn't designed uh, for necessarily even, or I should say exclusively for people with terminal illness. It can be uh, a way of mitigating pain or suffering 
uh, a juvent to any other curative intervention. We're lucky here in the Bay Area, nine hospitals out of 10 have a palliative care service. More and more, those palliative care services, which used to be clinically based, i.e. you had to go and drive down there and usually say to your treating doctor, by the way, I want a palliative care consult because it used to be that they weren't necessarily referred or brought in by the treating team so much. Um, whole host of reasons for that and, and uh, complicated ones and no reason to... But, but now it's starting to shift a bit where we're talking about community-based palliative care efforts where based in the hospital, all of the interdisciplinary team members that form that palliative care team, so it's the doc, it's the nurse, nurse practitioner, it's the social worker, it's the mental health person, it's maybe a volunteer, you've got the spiritual care, uh, some, some ecumenical version of the spiritual care team, and collaboration with a pharmacist who convenes about the patient's case. Uh, an example recently I had, uh, well not too recently, a couple, couple of years ago, um, you know, uh, palliative care uh, is always interested in the physical pain of the patient. So wanting to, the patient to rate his or her pain. How's your pain doing today? It's hard to get to these questions of meaning, value, and relationship if there's driving, consuming physical pain. So you've got to get that under, and, and, you know, if, if you always check in with the patient, let them teach you about what it's like to be them and what it is that they really want. But you, so you have folks do an assessment, and we did an assessment one day, and, and the woman said, you mean the pain that I have that no one comes to visit me? And the, the doc says, no, I mean your physical pain. Mm -hmm. See, so that, that's, so there's what's being said and what's really being said, and palliative care has the time to go to that level and say, yeah, that's the pain. Tell me more about it. Well, my, I'm, you know, I used to give care to my granddaughter, and now I can't, and I'm concerned about who's taking care of her. I miss her. I miss having a role in my house. This isn't where I want to be. This is a foreign territory. I'm in a hospital. I don't know the medical nomenclature. It doesn't smell the same. I hear the grr and the whizz and the cries of the people that are around me. I don't understand entirely uh, what's going on. Um, I'm confused, uh, and yet I get that there's this sort of driving momentum that somehow something is being done. Some goal is being sought after, and I get that it's for me to get better, but I'm, what I'm really concerned about is my granddaughter, or my pet, or you name it. And so palliative care takes the time to have those conversations on that level of the suffering piece, or the interdisciplinary nature in which we, we live life. And part of that includes living with, with illness. And so palliative care, um, you know, in, in that way, the way I've described it, when we do these international conferences, you'll have, well, I always have some person that'll say, what you mean by palliative care, uh, Heinerman, is good care. That's what you're saying. You're saying good patient-centered care. You can put some technical verb, but what you're saying is you, you privilege the patient as best you can and you take time to listen to, well, maybe that is what I'm saying. And so uh, a few, but, but that's, in, in the contemporary uh, machinations of, of how services are done right now, the, there's, time is of the essence. And there's a real thrust to make processes efficient and to have questions of meaning and value and relationship and to get into those deep layers, those aren't efficient conversations to have. And they're not easily reduced to a checkbox. And it may not necessarily help exactly interpret an MRI. So they began to kind of fall out of a lot of what was happening um, 
in our approaches to medicine. So they're coming back. Why? Because in 2000, when we spent 13 cents out of every dollar trying to figure out healthcare or to bail it out, and by the time you go 10 years later in 2010, and that number is up to 27 cents on the dollar, so doubled. And these are bipartisan figures, you know. I mean, maybe some were arguing 30 cents, some were saying 25, but, get, but, but it was ballooning. And at the same time, especially at the end of life, people were reporting that they weren't getting the kind of care that they wanted, and they were getting uh, treatment that they, that they, from which they couldn't benefit. And if you just look at Medicare, just as a quick slice, 25, two years ago, 25% of Medicare was spent on 3% of folks that were dying. So part of the whole health care tension and why you know, the Affordable Care Act really gets going is because we're, we're hemorrhaging uh, the funds around beginning of life, end of life, and the uninsured. So Obama says, okay, well, at least let's get with the uninsured piece. We're happy with the beginning of life piece, you know, less than 1% infant mortality rate. That's where we don't want to change that. So now let's look at the end of life piece. And the first consult that he had, and if you go to big publications like the think tank called the Berkeley Forum, they said palliative care is the answer to that. You start, you start treating the whole person farther upstream in, in the, all the interdisciplinary complexity. You go out to see them if you can, it would save you the admit and the discharge. And if you can improve someone's quality of life, which is the goal of palliative care, people tend to, 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 to be longer, to live longer. And so, um, so think tanks, government momentum, it got more and more bipartisan, which led to now studies that were already sort of in the mix, getting more national uh, acclaim. And we had now some longitudinal studies that could show that if you, you know, if you had, simul I, there's just one quick one, simultaneous care from the time of diagnosis. There's a whole bunch of studies. And if you go to the uh, JAMA, folks like Steve Panelot, who have pioneered so much of the early crucial research, but basically, um, study after study after study, People that got the palliative care, in addition to the curative interventions, reported better quality of life, improved symptoms, less depressed, less likely to receive undesired care, and they lived longer. Well, that sounds pretty good. How about this? This is from Steve's most recent piece. He, he, uh, Dr. Panelot, who was the chair and the founder of the, the um, palliative care service at UCSF. One out, of eight uh, one out of eight Americans is 65 now. By 2030... One in five will be over 65. 90% of those over 65 will have at least one, perhaps two chronic illnesses. So those won't, the military metaphor approach to full extirpation, conquest, remove, that, that way of framing illness will, will not work in those cases. By definition, we won't have those. 25% will have more than five chronic illnesses. So there's uh, an opportunity for us to, to relish the fact that palliative care is growing in departments, uh, not just here in the Bay Area, um, but uh, all throughout uh, the country. You did see um, uh, the, um, even Governor Brown yesterday was talking about this, or two days ago, in an address saying, in effect, we've got to have widespread community participation 
uh, understanding and what palliative care is. Uh, and we've got to empower and equip uh, current services and, even, and, and current physicians, even if that means increasing uh, education around what this can do. Here's what we have to be sensitive about it, but as it turns out, all of this, uh, all of this conversation about palliative care, in the long run, it tends to be cheaper. De that's a delicate point to make. Why? Because if it's cheaper, then the debate could be flipped to say, oh, you're wanting to expense, you're, you know, the, it was the hospice myth. Well, if, if you put someone in hospice, that'll be cheaper care and the insurance companies will be happier about that and so people will die faster and you'll have some, some and so in part, Sarah Palin started to go there when she was talking about the death panel piece, um, that it would be, people would see uh, palliative intervention as more cost effective. Well, that just turns out to be a cherry on top of what actually providing better care will, <laughs> looks like. Um, and of course, everything I just said there in the past couple of few minutes is, these are generalizations. So we would find pockets in certain uh, disease pathologies that have different trajectories where this might not exist. But in general, studies are, are demonstrating what I'm saying. So hence the proliferation of palliative care programs. The medical administrators are calling for it. And when it happens on that scale, you can best bet to expect it's... They've run the numbers. They've run the numbers. <laughs> and there are, it's a medical subspecialty that's growing yeah. and so forth, nurses, and there's uh, continuing medical education programs galore in it now, which is the way that physicians are retrained or get more training in things. Because there'll never be, the way our demographics are going with the aging population that you just described, enough purely specialized docs in that, but getting a lot more trained who are in geriatrics and family practice and internal medicine to do this kind of care and to coordinate it is very important. Yeah. And there is now going to be, you mentioned the wonderful Sarah Palin, who her, um, her death panel remarks and the politics did result in a gutting in, the, in Obamacare, the ACA, of reimbursement for talking about the end of life with patients. But that is now going to be put back in this year. The AMA has developed the coding so physicians can code for it. So that the Sarah Palin damage is being remedied finally yeah. in that regard. Um, you know, it just add, took a lot of time though. You know. Can I add something on that? Yes. In that palliative care pulse, a survey that we did a few years ago, we asked that question and 85% of Californians said, heck yeah, we want the physician to be reimbursed for, his, for her time. Of course we do, that makes sense to us. But I just thought I would add too, um, we asked folks, we said, hey, you know, um, would you even be open to having a conversation with a physician about you know, these end of life things. These are intimate, they're personal. Uh, end of life uh, discussions are almost like questions about our sexuality for some. They're deeply personal, very intimate. They, they, they need to be borne out in the context of a relationship for, for many of us. Would you, and so the question was, would you even be comfortable having those conversations? Resoundingly, 79% said, yes, I would want to talk to my doctor about my end of life wishes, 92% reported that they had never. Um, 80 uh, and uh, less than 50%, here's the thing though, just for the balancing sake, and this isn't just a medical, but less than 40% had ever spoken to their loved ones about yeah. any end of life wishes. And so um, there are, this isn't just a, a way of framing it medically. There's obviously a lot more going on. Can I, and just one, just I promise this is the end of the, the you know, in, 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 in Catholic parlance, it, when the Pope issues an encyclical, it's like a blast email, not to the laity, 
but to the bishops, to the folks who are going to be doing the teaching and who are responsible for the education. In a certain sense, um, the report I'm referencing from the Institute of Medicine, uh, they had a Dying in America report that came out a few months ago. And in a way, these were, this was sort of like a letter from the dean to the other deans of the medical school saying, we strongly advise some curriculum changes. Here's what they were. A, we need to be more patient-centered and family-oriented in our care throughout the continuum, i.e., we need more palliative presence. In the, we need different patient-doctor communication. It's got to change. It can't be truncated. We know that the literacy and the takeaway is thinning more and more. We need a different way of communicating and in honoring and listening. It says physicians need more education and uh, development in this area not just at end of life, but especially around palliative uh, as a subspecialty. Uh, and policies and payment systems much change to accommodate uh, an increased role and presence. So when the Institute of Medicine is leaning on it, when the president is saying it, when your governor is calling this, hey, we need more palliative care, and the hospital administrator at Kaiser's, you know, saying, we just added five new palliative care slides. We're starting to see a change. And five years ago, I mean, if, well, I don't know if I'd have seen it happen this fast. Yeah, I don't know if it's changed much, but I used to, well, well, one thing I'd say is contrary to popular belief, doctors are, are people, too. Of course, oh, yeah. And so I used to, at, when speaking to medical audiences, I used to make, and I would ask people to shut their eyes so nobody would be embarrassed, I would ask people, raise your hand if you have filled out an advanced directive, durable power of attorney, advanced directive for your own health care. Generally around 40%. The general public is around 30%. Not much difference, really, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a human thing to not think about it. But we should mention one of the tools. You and I have actually shared a grant, and I brought this up, I think, before here. There is actually a document for when you do get illness, and that we're now actually, it's, it's called POLST, uh, Physicians' Orders for Life Sustaining Treatment. It's a bright pinkish kind of form that goes into your medical record where you actually can specify in a dialogue with your physician what preferences for treatment would be. And so we've been officially, by a grant, we've been impulsed pushers for the Bay Area and uh, have been getting it out into hospitals. And it's, it is something that's becoming a new tool. I mean, if you want to say anything about it, as a, yeah. it's basically a tool that focuses... You know, it helps to have an actual form, and I think we've, I've published it in a journal a couple of times, so I probably have one, but to have a form where you can use in this dialogue with a patient, and so physicians can actually go down this and say, would you like, in this case, antibiotics, resuscitation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is, most of the other ones are legal documents, or the other ones are durable power, et cetera. This is actually a medical order that goes in your chart and follows you around. Yeah. So it's something, at some point when you're, you know, and it's for people who are already facing a, a serious illness, but it's something to bring up uh, with your physician to say, you know, do you have post forms? They're in the hospital medical lounges now and so forth, you know, mm -hmm. um, that could, it's a way to enter that conversation, even mm -hmm. if you don't have the diagnosis yet that requires it. So, yeah. 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 I mean, this is a... a um, this post paradigm is an effort to shore up both um, educational awareness for, for families and for patients, but also to incentivize um, uh, professionals, especially doctors, but perhaps nurse practitioners, to engage a conversation when folks are medically frail around very specific kinds of treatment, ventil mechanical ventilation, CPR, and tube feeding, in effect. 
And it's not some vague kind of hypothetical conversation. It's grounded in what we know to be the case given the illness here that's presenting in the room. So we know this is happening now. So to have someone walk through and say, given, given where you are, this is what CPR would look like. This would be the needs. These would be the kinds of, we'd have to transfer here. Or mechanical ventilation. And so to go through each one, to do some psychoeducation and to get a, most importantly, to get a picture from the patient and if, and if relevant, his or her family. Is this, teach us about what it's like to be, what do you want? So that we can help, so that we can know what it is. And you have to revisit that document every time um, the prognosis changes. And so this is a living document, but it's a tool. I like it mostly because um, even in many cases uh, in the boomers, uh, sort of in the boomers um, tradition, most of us weren't mentored in having these conversations. Uh, we don't, you, you know, whether you're coming from a humanities background or a medicine background, but to, to, to engage uh, around these end-of-life wishes, um, again, when to do that, how to do that, when would be urgent clinical indications to do that. Most of us haven't had that training, and so these conversations tend to just sort of remain at the periphery. Uh, and, well... It's, it, it is, is one of the great uh, uh, former leaders of Zen Hospice used to say, you know, hope is not a plan. Yeah. And, and we sure do have hope, but it's not, but, but we, we've got to have other ways of, of serving, of giving care, of loving, of sojourning with in the event that this particular one doesn't work. And Pulsed is a way of, of teasing out what would be some other crucially important things to keep in mind. And so it can be tailored to that person's life. It's not about reducing someone to a checklist. It's really about providing information and, le and letting this person teach the, the MD or the NP what it's like to be them. It's going to be spread a lot more now, partly because of the reason I just mentioned that there's now going to be reimbursement for doctors to talk about this because it takes time. And, uh, you know, the, the structure of reimbursement has focused very much incentivized people to do procedures rather than sit and talk, right? Mm -hmm. But that's going to change a little bit, at least in this respect. And also, we just passed, I actually wrote this myself, in, in, in other, some other states, nurses can do it as well, nurse practitioners, and it in, who are just tend to have more time because they tend to be on salary, et cetera. They aren't incentivized to do all these procedures. And they also have as good or sometimes better training in these kind of discussions than a lot of the doctors do. So we just passed a policy at the state here to change California so that nurses can do it as well. And that'll probably, it'll take a year to, to do that. It requires a regulation change, but nurse practitioners will be able to do post as well. So cool. um, let's talk about another topic. So here's today's San Francisco Chronicle. And the top article, the lead article is State Bill Spells Out Right to Die. Right? So this is about the topic of physician-assisted dying, which has been around for a long, long time and is controversial, et cetera, et cetera. A couple of legislators have now, again, this has happened a few times in previous decades, have put out a, uh, a bill that would legalize this under a lot of conditions. Uh, the first one being that you have a diagnosis that you're expected to die within six months and that it's imminent and that you go through a screening process where you have some untreatable issues, pain or otherwise, you are uh, assessed psychologically so to make sure that you don't have a treatable depression, 
and then you are actually given some chance of uh, taking an intervention that will hasten your death. Um, in hospice, this has been formally, formally a no-no. The AMA says it's uh, a no-no, and the laws, except for now in uh, five states, have legalized it in some form, but the real places where it has really taken effect and been evaluated are Oregon and Washington. Yeah. Um, we've had some interesting talk about this because my, um, the central irony of this to me and my experience, and I've, I've worked with this issue a lot with patients in the past, is that if you give them often the right to this, and this has been borne out in, in the other states, if you give people the, the issue to say, we'll be there for you, if you want to do this, we'll take care of it, the vast majority never use it, but they may stick around even longer because they aren't afraid of losing that control and they have the option when they want to. So it's kind of ironic in a way, and in some ways by granting this legally or, or not, you can extend life in some cases. It's such a great point that you make. I mean, one of the most remarkable statistics that's come out of looking at uh, the Oregon, who of course passed it in 97, right when the Supreme Court uh, allowed it. So they had a good 10 year sort of longitudinal study to capture the data and they were saying, uh, in that 10-year span, one out of 100 Oregonians that, were, that was eligible for the act actually went through the waiting period for two weeks, did the psych eval, did the two times oral and the two times written to confirm, and then got the meds. Only one out of 100 Oregonians eligible actually went that far. But of that subset, only one out of 10 took it. Mm -hmm. To Steve's point, I think. Palliative care... Um, when, when effective, when present, when it's doing, uh, when, it's, when it's reaching, I think, some of its goals, um, can really attend to a person, can serve them, and we're much, much better than we were in 1960 in terms of treating pain. I think uh, Steve and I talked about this, you know, some of the resistance uh, that I had seen in the early 90s especially, but that still kind of matriculates in ways and pockets and fits and spurts around hospice, had some credibility to it in that in the 60s, Many baby boomers saw parents die in pain in ward light settings with their pain undertreated. And whether that was the, wasn't the fault of hospice, of course, but, but, that, but there, was an, there was an association there. There was a connotation that was fused. That, well, that's where you go when there's no more. And uh, palliative medicine right now, distinguishing between bone pain, nerve pain, muscle pain, getting on it quickly, really understanding the power and the role of, a, of, a, of the, the uh, pharmacy team, we're experts at managing pain in, in many ways. And so when people's pain is managed skillfully uh, and palliative care is doing their, their, their thing and the person still has the power if they want to proceed, people tend not to end up using it. That's, that was the conclusion of the... Well, and when it's used, if you talk to the most of the physicians I've known, and of course it was really big when the HIV epidemic exploded in the Bay Area. This was happening a lot. There was no effective therapy for the disease and the knowledge was there in a fairly sophisticated patient population about how to do this. And it was usually done via a kind of terminal sedation where you're hooked up with opiates and so forth. But by the judgment of most of the people who really knew, the time that you're talking about from somebody dying doing this or if you would have let it happen quote unquote naturally was somewhere less than a week. Mm. Uh, so it was people who were really suffering at the end. It wasn't a that's long right. time. Right. And the thing, the other interesting dynamic that's happened in Oregon and Washington is that even without you actually using the intervention at the end, the, the assisted dying, I don't use the term assisted suicide. This is not to my, this isn't suicide. This is something else. But so assisted dying, the amount of 
opiates and painkillers used in the end of life has increased dramatically because the physicians are not afraid to use them a lot and be persecuted, prosecuted, investigated for doing this. Mm -hmm. So it has improved the end of life care. Now we're kind of biased, I'm just kind of curious. We have an unusual group here, I'm sure, and just the fact that you showed up, but you don't have to close your eyes because I don't think you're ashamed, but how many people here think this should be a legal option in California? Legal, legal, yes, that we should change the law. Actually, I should ask the other, how many people think it shouldn't? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the polls in the California right now are showing something like 70% of the general public. Um, what we're having to work with now is the physician population because the State Medical Association has uh, euthanized the previous attempts, the bills at this, and, uh, but we now have a, a lot more, since the last time, which was in the 90s that this was proposed, uh, we have a lot more information on polling of physicians, which is showing more like a 50-50 split. And so if we can, in a sense, make the state association neutral to stay out of the debate, we can get the bill passed. So that proposal I just submitted yesterday to the State Medical Association. You're listening to a conversation with Nate Heinemann and Steve Heilig. Um, it's going to be an uphill battle, but it's interesting. It's a conservative group. And the, the, the concerns that you'll hear and that you'll read about, we read some of these. I mean, we were laughing out loud at what, you know, there are people out there who think that there's this huge reservoir of people who want to kill a lot of people out there, you know? I mean, I don't see it. It doesn't happen where it's been legalized. And if they really want to do that, they could do it now. Because if you have to go through all these guidelines, there are many more safeguards in here than there are for the average patient in terms of what you have to do. That's right. That's right. So that thing I'm not so worried about, and uh, there are possible abuses, but they don't seem to have happened in, in other places. I'm with you. I, I, I sure do love, in each of the five states, and will, will be inclusive in this particular act as well, that hospice and palliative care conversations are mandated. Mm -hmm. Talk about incentive. So if someone comes in to talk about that, we, now... There has to be a conversation around hospice and palliative care. When the conducted the palliative care pulse survey went out, at the very end, this was a bit cheeky, I guess, but we asked um, about the participants' familiarity with, with terms like hospice and DNR and palliative care and all this kind of stuff. And 18% of those surveyed knew what palliative care meant. So it's an interesting kind of demographic because you know, you've got this survey conducting the palliative care pulse and then you're scratching your head going, what is that again? You know, or that, was that a... So uh, just to, to your good point then, um, there's uh, the, the, the fact that the, the fertile terrain of what palliative care could do, what hospice could do, and to have that framed and given and, and paid for even in the event that the person didn't have insurance, I think that's a tremendous um, uh, gift and an offer that oftentimes uh, we know w with all of the late referrals to hospice these days, average length, a couple weeks, less than, this could improve that. Um, so I like that they, that they kept that in the bill. I want to ask you about, so we've been talking about delaying the inevitable, mm -hmm. in a sense, or making it at least come in the least uh, difficult way. So it happens eventually, and I, you work with people, I want to ask you about grief uh, a little bit, and what your lessons, your main lessons about when the end comes. You talk about for people themselves, they have what has been called anticipatory grief. I mean, we grieve our own mortality when it comes close and you know it's coming. Yeah. And much of that, as you noted in those responses, is about other people, about not being a burden to mm -hmm. your family, mm -hmm. to your caregivers, 
to anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a fascinating thing because that's a form of altruism in a sense. It's not about, I'm worried about myself. Mm -hmm. I don't want other people to suffer because of me. Yeah. So what, is, what, are, what, what can be done about that? What are the lessons there in a sense? So can I share with you, this is, um, if it's not too boring, and you can stop me if you want, but there was, another, there was a book I did a while back called Preserving um, the Dead and the Lives of the Living, and I used a, uh, a study there of 200 um, students and I had asked them, this was in 2002, sorry. So this was a year after the events of September 11th. And I was asking them questions around their, their grief. They didn't know that. Um, so the questions went something like, um, this was eight months after September 11th, so whatever date that was. I asked, do any of you experience uh, sleep problems as a result? Five people said yes. 190-something said no, not really. So do you ever have uh, shortness of breath or a clenching of the, of the tummy uh, or sweat when, you've got, uh, when you think about September 11th? Uh, 10 or 12 said yes, and the rest said no. I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm giving it to you exactly backwards. Most people, had, most people were having the somatic response. Uh, I, here, this, this was the one. Uh, they, they said, um, I ask, uh, how many of you, uh, or, or did you rethink um, your relationship with a higher power or with God or your purpose in life as a result of this, sort of a spiritual kind of a grieving thing. Most, the vast majority of the folks said yes, that, they, that this had changed something about the way in which they felt situated in the world. So these are all, you know, the spiritual grieving, active, you know, emotional grieving. People said yes, and then towards the end of the survey, I said, are you actively still grieving? The event, I just asked the question, are you active, do you think you're actively still grieving? The vast majority said no, not actively still grieving. So um, this is a, uh, an issue not just, uh, you know, these are largely 18 to 22-year-old folks uh, that were sampled for, for, for the purpose of that survey. I think there's something ironic about the fact that it's uh, sometimes hard to know when we're grieving. And yet, if you ask someone, are, are you suffering? It's much more a metaphorical landscape. It seems to me, at least in my years, in a therapeutic space, are you suffering? And somebody look at you, and you ask that way, you get a, people know when they are. It's hard to avoid, it's, it's harder to deny and stave off that. And yet, grief nowadays for so many is so privatized. It's my problem. It's, it's impolite to share it. I don't have the language to share it. Uh, what good would it do? Um, the most popular approach to uh, mental health issues these days is cognitive behavioral therapy, in part because it's a heck of a lot easier to assess for efficacy if I say, when do you remember feeling better? And you say, well, I went to that lecture by uh, uh, Deepak Chopra, and right when he said this, I said, boom, epiphany. That freed me up. So we can remember when we had an idea or a first sort of aha moment a lot easier than we can remember when we stopped being depressed. When did you stop that 10-year-long depression? Well, it's hard to say. Something. So cognitive behavioral therapy, of course, asserts that it's not events that cause our affect. Somebody dies. That's, it's the way we think about the events. So if we can change the way we think about, then we, can, then, uh, we, won't, we won't be so radically contingent 
to the events that will happen around us that we don't like. And this is a powerful uh, therapeutic approach to distress and to suffering that can be very effective in all sorts of areas, um, not the least of which I think is uh, in, in drug and alcohol um, abuse. Grief, though, is tricky because, at least to me, fundamentally, uh, when people are grieving, I don't think it's because they're thinking about it wrong. Um, and um, so I think in this case, uh, the event really is causing the reaction. And so how do I authentically uh, observe and be present to that which is true for me in terms of the grief response? And I just, I think that grief, perhaps more than any human experience, is so insisting on a community of support. It's, that is navigated in the healing to whatever extent that emerges comes through, I think, in a way when we are able to see it and be held by another in the process of it. The hardest thing to do, would, I think, and we do a whole lot of this, is to grieve in isolation. Do you recommend then, I mean, in a sense that grief groups and that kind of thing? Is... Grief groups are powerful, and I've run many, and you're right. The, the, um, I think that they... Uh, they can be tremendous. I, I, you know, there was a, um, uh, there's a huge church, St. Ignatius Church, up at uh, University of San Francisco, uh, where I teach. And, you know, there's a, as this church is being built, there's, a, uh, there's some historical information around um, a couple funerals that are happening there. And just how people, when they were walking by, these were people that didn't know uh, the deceased, felt warm and invited in terms of being able to come in, mm. to lay a hand, to say I'm sorry, to give presence. Why? Because when one, even one death, is a tearing at the societal fabric. It's, it's all of us. It's our tapestry. It's not just somebody's loss. It's our loss. Um, but if, you know, when my students hear that, they say, I, the last thing in the world, Nate, I would do is go into a church or a synagogue of someone who I didn't know what would I say? What would I possibly say to that person? And I think that's the, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated impulse to look at because the what do I say I think is born from a place of I sure would like to help. I sure would like to take some of that suffering away. I sure would like to, to give them an answer that would free them up. But of course, as we all know, especially in those moments of profound vulnerability and when we're grieving at the, at, to the core, uh, there's no someone coming in and fixing that, especially not just coming in with one word or two words. Or, and so usually what people, I think, uh, or what I have certainly benefited most from is the capacity for someone to enter in and say, teach me about what it's like to be you. I, 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 I'm so sorry. Tell me about what it's like to, be, to, to listen to hear, to sojourn with me, and I think it speaks to that then. I don't know the road that, uh, that we're walking, but let's walk it together. I'm here. Let's keep, let's keep talking. Let's keep processing. Let's keep crying. Let's keep observing. And at that point, uh, some of the affect begins to, to ventilate. And I'm not saying go away, but maybe it makes room then for other affective memories, experiences, and so on. So the terrain of grief, I think, is um, made so much more difficult to walk when we insist that somehow someone ought to do that on their own. And do you, do you subscribe still? I mean, how do you feel there's a lot of reevaluation of the Kubler-Ross stages? Oh, yeah. Five stages. Is that something that you find useful anymore? Or? Um, 
No, I, you know, it, well, the take home is that um, it's true. Grieving is highly individualistic and, uh, you know, um, uh, it's an evolving process and um, it's, it's informed by uh, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, Freud's notion that um, just the primordial soup for our grief as adults is born out of the way in which we detach I've got three-year-old, I'm soon to be three-year-old twin girls, so you can imagine the bedtime rituals and the kind of manipulation and protest that goes on around, you know, one more story or one more. But that it's, but he, he talks very specifically. It's exactly those kind of moments when now the self-soothing is really going to have to start because Dad's not going to come in and tell me the 16th version of Goldilocks, and I'm going to have to self-soothe. And how that's done, uh, and how we each did that in our own, in all the milieus of our families, there's a distinctness in how we had to make sense of that and how secure we felt and how scared and how angry or how out of control, whatever the parameters were. And so Freud says down the line that helps what uh, makes sort of the, 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 the adult grieving experience Unique, why we have a version of it. But at the same time, um, you know, we know what it's like to, in general, to be forlorn and to suffer. And I don't maybe know exactly your version of it in this moment, but I know my version of suffering. And so I don't know exactly what you know, but I've had those, I've had similar feelings. And so we begin to connect on that level of wonderment, of, of open respect, and care begins then to drop in, and now a new relationship begins where healing might. Might. I just remember be, being taught by, a, he's actually a, a, a dying psychiatrist, and he said, well, it's very interesting. I go through those five steps once an hour. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> In a reverse so, order. So it's not like it's a logistical progression that you're, you get to the end and you're done, that you get to go through it in a different way all the time, you know. No, you know, in the in the '80s, especially, uh, in, we all this got written around. Um, all the stuff uh, got written around the grief work model, which was kind of a promise that you could reduce the stages of grief uh, to tasks, and it made a lot of sense and was very appealing, especially for an American culture that liked to sort of get her done and cross it off the list. And I don't know if you're like me, but you know, the, I, the really reason I carry a cell phone is to keep a calendar on me because I'm constantly, okay, got that done, okay, now next. And, and so this was set up like that, and we, we taught and tried to inculcate um, uh, methodologies and uh, seminars and all sorts of self-help uh, recommendations around this notion of how to frame grief and then sort of, you know, step by step, do this today, do that tomorrow, do that for now. And for some folks, I'm sure it worked. But uh, I think your good point, uh, at least in my experience, uh, grief is too protean uh, for that sort of, to be harnessed in that way. It needs ventilation, not, um, not a, um, <laughs> doesn't follow orders, you know. So we rushed through a lot of yeah. complicated stuff, of course, but... Um, I want to ask people if they wish to. Please, thank ask you for your patience. Make yeah. a, a, of some kind, of either of us or each other. Yes. So, when is the best time to do a pulse? <laughs> Good. So, uh, medical frailty really is the driver for that. And one way of defining that would be if the physician and the person wouldn't be surprised if the current diagnosis wouldn't at some point be that which might either hasten or cause one's death. So, you know, we live with, uh, so, some of us live with, you know, certain types of chronic illnesses for decades. 
So, but even in the earlier parts of those decades, a pulsed form is totally appropriate. A pulsed form wouldn't be appropriate for my uh, nursing students at USF uh, who would need to otherwise do an advanced directive. Medical frailty is what is important when approaching the pulsed because, again, the pulsed is customized around exactly that person and the condition that can be cited here. My students don't have that medical frailty, so there's, no, there's nothing to contextualize it around. Instead, they would, they would do five wishes or something like that. That's a great advance directive. So when death is in sight? Well, when, when the condition that's present at some point, years or decades even down the line, wouldn't on, be... On a diagnosis of any condition that could hasten your death. I mean, yeah. certainly on a cancer diagnosis, yeah. uh, serious heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, a neurological problem. The upshot of this document is that it travels with the patient so that once these conversations are had with the kind of depth and rigor and, and, um, and intent uh, that's, that's rich, that when the physician signs it, one need not have to go through the, I mean, you can ask to do it again, but the idea is that it transfers with the, the person, and so those values can be respected cross-institutionally. We know that the ED is very rarely a place where you say, tell me about, how, no, how are you really doing? You know, that, which is the place that you need to go in a certain sense to do the post well. And, and like, is it best to do it with a primary physician or... Well, yeah. that's it, it done now, although, you know, as I mentioned, nurses, nurse practitioners are going to be able to do it. Right. They already are in some ways, and the docs are signing it if they're too busy and depends on the setting. But yes, with your primary physician, the, whoever you're most comfortable and or who knows. Whoever you're, you think will do the best job with you. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One, um, I've been a hospice nurse for 30 years, and one of the things that I'm experiencing when I go to physicians now, more so than, say, 10 or 20 years ago, is that everybody's got a computer in front of their face. <laughs> and um, as someone who's grown to some degree of comfort with the thought of death and with DNR and with all these forms, um, I would say that I would want to have this conversation with somebody that I trust. Yes. And not somebody who's got a computer in front of their face and is running off a checkbox. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, do you want this? Do you want that? Yes. Just so the form is complete and it's on the yes. chart. Yes. So this thing about, you know, how years ago physicians went to your home. Yes. I mean, that's been my experience in hospice work is going yes. into people's homes where it's a much more comfortable place to have these conversations where these conversations happen at a natural pace and not as a, oh, we're going to fill out this form now. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be a very yes. important thing. Um, and another thing that I wanted to state was that in this country, death is not a, a, a familiar or a very comfortable thing um, in this culture. Mm -hmm. And especially physicians who are taught to diagnose and treat disease. So it's, it's really a, a roundabout thing for them to get mm -hmm. back to a place where they can be comfortable with it. And um, I would find when we, sometimes we got calls from patients' families who who wanted a referral to hospice, and you would call physicians, and they were reticent to say, yes, she's good. Yes, um, she has less than six months yes. to live, which is what the red, which is sure. what the Medicare regulations are. Yes. So they, so if you would say that to them, 
Uh, do you think that this patient has yes. less than six months to live? They would not want to say that. Right. Because it was like they were playing God and they didn't want to play God. Yeah. Um, and I found it much more valuable to ask them, would you be surprised yes, if this person it. died mm -hmm. within the next yeah. six months? Mm -hmm. Which is a totally different question. Thank you so much. Those are two just essential points, both just spot on. Can I just say, Ira Bayok, I mean, you've heard that name before. Yeah. This is a physician who has championed hospice and palliative care for many decades. He's very charismatic and articulate. I heard him give a talk for the California Coalition for Compassionate Care. I'm on the board of this group. And so we met in Southern California. He was the keynote. And he said that the number one skill that physicians are going to need in the next five, ten years, whether they be palliative or oncological in specialization, he said they're going to have to be good information managers because the the all of the, the the vectors within healthcare are changing where the patients are getting their information you know it used to be doctor knows best go get the doctor's orders and you follow them and now every one of us don't we well i'm feeling this or my doctor said that so we cross check it we get on a chat we start to build information we come in and it's in it's changing the role that patients have with their doctors there's a book out that i just love it's called um <laughs> this was in the Oprah Best Book uh, series or, or, or club. It was called um, Please Let Me Help. And it was written by ex-patient Pete to his doctor saying, hey, carve out some space for me. I've got some ideas for how this could go. Good information managers. Uh, um, there's a, you know... There's a little uh, cartoon there that happens in my mind. And, it, you know, this doctor is saying, well, do you want uh, the pill? Uh, do you want the patch? Um, we could probably do it in Elixir. Or do you want the app? You know, and it's like, you can just almost imagine that it could, could go that way, that you would have a healthcare app designed just for you. So the, the managing the information. Where did you hear that from? Connecting voices within the patient's own experience with his or her own. It may really change the the kind of, version of medical paternalism that's, it's, that has inhabited that, that role over so many years. Uh, just anyway, so that is a, so, such an astute point. Thank you. Thank you for coming, too. Yes. I have a question. Is the pulse then kind of overtaking the DNR because I'm an elderly mother and she has DNR and she's absolutely medically frail. She's in mm -hmm. hospice. I mean, it seems like she should have a pulse? Does anybody reference the DNR anymore? What's its yeah. function, really? Mm -hmm. yeah. or, you know, I'm confused yeah. about the distinction between these two things. Yeah, well, the, so the, this is a great point. The question came up when we were first trying to get this paradigm in. The EMT said, now wait. In effect, if I look at this carefully, this looks like a, a pre-hospital DNR. Is, now do we even need DNRs anymore? Somebody said no over here. Do you want to... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, I could answer too, but you've had this. Well, I have a terminal illness. I've been on an investigational drug, and I really want a copy of your article for the 10th Floor Boys. Okay. Um, the pulse is to be at home because it's the duty of the EM EMTs to intubate you and to provide all bells and whistles if they're not told to stop and to transport you to a hospital. So the point of the pulse and the point of it being bright pink is that it's in your house as the first thing you see yeah. when you walk in your door to stop the EMTs because then it takes a court order to have an intubation tube removed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Okay. But it's not an either or because the DNR in right. in the hospital. So when that's I, it. When that's I, why we have two. When we're doing ethics consults in the hospital, uh, one of the first questions often after hearing all the conditions and the prognosis is, is this what's the code status of this yeah. patient? And trying to, if it isn't DNR yet, for somebody who is obviously failing um, and is not going to be helped by these kind of bells and whistles, um, including in the hospital. They often don't work. I mean, this is one of the great, and there's great mystery or misconceptions is that you, know, you look on uh, television shows and everything and all these dramas, you know, doing resuscitation tends to bring people back to life. It's, it's not very effective, actually, in most cases for most people. It may bring people back to a breathing status that you don't want to be in, you know, because you, you've had brain damage. But in any event, DNR is still important for you know, it's not an either or, you have both. You have a, a DNR status that'll be, I mean, if you have the post, you'll have that, but also in the inpatient setting, it's important to know that that is in, in effect. Anything you can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, increases your chances of getting treated as you wish towards the, at that point, you know. In part two, and I mean, the, 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 there's more at stake um, there are more. There are immediate decisions, as you know, that ha would have to be made. There's a decision tree. If if resuscitating, then there, you know, how about mechanical ventilation? What about tube feeding? And what about the willingness to be transferred to to achieve these things uh, amongst a whole smattering of others? So Polst wants to have it laid out and get the approval, and 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 the the to get the request from the patient to say yes, please, I want you to do just that. And then I want this done, and that, no, no, but that I don't, and to get it mapped out so that so the, so the resuscitation is a, is a is a is a piece to a whole series of things. Yeah. Does the post the question over here? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Does the post um, replace the medical directive? Then? No. 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 The medical directive is still helpful in two two primary ways. One, the directive allows you to appoint a healthcare proxy, a healthcare surrogate. That person's name, or those person's names, are recorded on the post, but it's not a form where you officially designate that. So the directive is key to announce the healthcare proxy. And the second piece would be, I think, to customize beyond just the nuts and bolts decisions around life-extending technologies, other important things that caregivers should keep in mind. And maybe those are tied more to the questions in, of meaning and value and relationship. Uh, maybe those are, uh, oh, they, they, they could very well, of course, speak to other conditions. Um, my husband is my caregiver yes. and has been for 35 years. I had surgery last Today, in fact, last year. Mm -hmm. And I didn't put a medical directive in place because I felt he knew everything that I want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I had doubts. Mm -hmm. But I still haven't put a medical directive in place mm -hmm. because I've lived so long with this disease. Mm -hmm. when, do you, when do you worry, I guess, or when do you actually? Mm -hmm. You want to do it while you still can. So that's the... that's. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, it's about, these things are, the end product is important, but a lot of it is about having that discussion, both with your husband in this case, your caregiver, whoever it might be if you're not able, but your, whoever your primary clinicians are. Yeah. 
So there was back, was it? Yeah. Well, one thing that's occurred to me listening to both of you, and especially when you were talking about grief, mm. is to recognize that in our culture, you think if you talk about it once, it's over. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from people who have lost loved ones in the last mm -hmm. several years is it's never over. Mm -hmm. And some people need to talk Thank about you. grief yes. over and over mm -hmm. again. And it's so important mm -hmm. to have that opportunity. Yes. And I think the same thing applies to everything yes. we're talking about. Yes. That talking about end of life wishes is something you need to talk about several different yes. times. All of this yes. is not finished just once. Yes. And that's a cultural imperative. You've done it, it's finished, stop. Mm -hmm. Task accomplished. That's what I was kind of referring to with the Kubler-Ross things, which imply that you start with denial and you end up with resolution and then you're done. But actually you go through this over and over and over and hopefully each time you go through it, it's a little less acute and painful where you do actually get a resolution where you're living with that as part of you as a changed person, but it's not ruling your life and causing you all that suffering. Are you okay to change? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's a brilliant point. Yeah. It's such a brilliant point. Yes, thank you. Bill Lamers put Kubler Ross on a wheel. That really works much better. Mm -hmm. yeah. That the wheel keeps spinning around yeah, right. and you might catch the spoke yeah. right. at a different time. Bill Lammers also gave the greatest response to a question that was a hard one. Someone was asking, you know, so the subject matter expert in the room with all of the parchments on the wall is the MD. Perhaps even being perceived to be on a pedestal in some sort of vague, uh, you know, approach. And so they said, "How, how in the world are you supposed to have an honest, open conversation with someone with a terminal illness without?" in a certain way, coercing them into having them take on your view, right? Because you're going to report the facts, but you're going to report a certain version of them that you think are important. And anyways, how can you, how do you work with people around truth-telling and terminal illness? And he says, you tell the patient the truth, nothing but the truth, but not the whole truth. And when I show this video in my classes, my students initially get mad. They say, no, no, you got to tell the whole truth. What do you, you can't hold back. That's you know, choices based on based on deformation are based on different information, and so you've got to empower the patient. Medical, uh, you know, a patient autonomy is utterly undercut if you don't give the full. And and Lammer's point, of course, is that there's a lot more truth hearing than truth telling, and he wants to get the patient's picture of what's really going on from there and what it means to them, what's at stake for them. That's all just as important as whatever he's going to say. So the truth telling. Uh, you tell what you've got, and you know as much of it as you got, but but not the whole truth because that's a collaborative conversation of truth that keeps on emerging and growing over time. It's not an event, and it's born out in the context of a relationship, um, ideally. So I, I love him for that too. And that's the truth and the whole truth. <laughs> we're gonna call it. We're gonna call it a day here. I want to thank you all very much for coming to this interesting. Thank you. Thank you. See why I wanted thank to you. bring it here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really a passionate advocate for changing or ending the war on death, as we called it. We just made that up over a, a, a over a scotch, and, and we said now we got to actually talk about it. But he was already ready with all the military. Stuff, Thank so. you for your time and, and for coming and for your warmth and your presence. I, I I sure felt it. If you want to stay around and talk afterwards, I'm here. Would love to. So, and we, again, the New School, we welcome your donations if you, to keep these things going, and thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Nate Heinerman and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. 
Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook 